never done that in all these years. Good morning. I was going to say I was with you. Y'all there? Uh, I feel like people, um, maybe you read through the blog, but people are going to be nervous. We're going to have some fun this morning. Um, good morning again if you're watching online. Welcome as well. Um, this week as I was preparing for this sermon, I realized something about myself. You always get to learn something new about yourself. And I realized this week that I love epigraphs. Right? And some of you are like, what's an epigraph? Well, let me tell you. Most of us, we look at a book and we look at the back cover and we decide that, one, you think, do we want to read the book, right? But for most of us, we're honest. We look at the back cover and we think we know everything about the book, right? Like, it's like, I like the back cover on the book, right? Well, an epigraph is just something a little bit different. Like, you have to move from the back cover to, to actually the inside of the book, right? And when you get to the inside of the book, what the epigraph is, is usually like a standalone quote that's the beginning of the book, right? So before the book begins, this this quote to kind of tell you maybe about the context of what's going to be happening or, or theme or, or maybe even the purpose, right? There's a lot of uh, famous books that do this. I want to read a couple um, that just struck my fancy this week. So, for example, again, um, in, in Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, very famous book, right? It begins by her quoting Charles Lane. Again, if there's any lawyers in the building or, or a lawyer doing listening, I apologize ahead of time. This isn't me, this is Harper Lee, right? Um, he says this, and then quoting Charles Lane, lawyers, I suppose, were children once. Right? Again, she's trying to set the scene and the concept of where the book is going. Or, or maybe you're a fan of the Godfather movies. There's also a book that actually came before the movies, right? And, and Mario Puzo, um, of course, a uh, uh, person by the name of Balzac, right? And he's setting the theme of this. And he says, behind every great fortune, there is a crime, right? And if you know the Godfather, that makes sense. Or you can just call that a miracle, right? But we'll keep moving, right? Um, uh, but this is also, these epigraphs also happen in movies, right? So sometimes you'll see a quote in the beginning of a movie that kind of, again, sets the context, sets the, 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 the theme, and even the purpose. One of my, my, one of my favorite movies is weird, because I don't know how enjoy this movie, right? One of my favorite movies is uh, one that came out a couple of years ago, 2008, long time ago. Um, it's called The Boy in Psychedamas, and, and this movie is about um, uh, one little boy who grows up with his dad is it's a Nazi-German person who's in, in power and authority, right? And if you can then infer from the Psychedamas, the other boy that he befriends is going to be a Jewish boy on the other side of the fence who's in the concentration camp, right? And then before this movie begins, there's a quote um, from John Beckman that says, childhood is measured out by sounds and smells and sights before the dark hour of reason grows, right? And that kind of, again, sets the context, the purpose, the theme. So you see epigraphs, right, in the beginning of books, in the beginning of movies, and they're trying to let you understand where we're going. That's important. Because the passage we're going to read this morning, we're going to read it in its entirety, look at all what's been described as the household code in Ephesians, right? For us to truly understand this, I think we have to understand the epigraphs, right? We have to understand where Paul begins, because, again, in the latter part of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul is going to be saying every aspect of your life should be impacted by the story of Jesus. Every single aspect of your life should be impacted by the story of Jesus. And Paul seems to believe that the public faith you put forward doesn't matter as much as the private faith at home. He seems to think that, again, if you are going to be truly filled by the Spirit and then following Jesus, it has to be seen in how you interact at home. So this passage is going to speak on marriage. It's going to speak on a household or the Roman household back then. It's going to talk about slaves and masters and children and parents. And then within all of this, Paul wants us to understand the epigraph, right? And the epigraph is going to be where we begin. 
So the very first verse we read, and Paul, if we want to understand this passage, and I have to pause for a second because I think this is probably one of the most preached-on passages in the last 2,000 years, but I would venture to say it's one of the most mispreached passages in the last 2,000 years. This has been a passage that we have used as men to oppress our sisters. In this way, this is a passage we use to steal land from the natives and to enslave people from Africa. And this is a passage that we have used as parents, or maybe we've forgotten as parents and how we interact with our children, but we have passed down our traumas onto our children. It's not an easy passage, but if we're going to work through it, we have to get what Paul is ultimately saying. And if you want to get what he's ultimately saying, you've got to get what he says in the context, right? So if you have your Bible, show with me in Ephesians chapter 5. I uh, guess 22 verses. I hope you like reading scripture in public. We're going to get through it together, right? Um, the first verse is funny. My wife is like right in the front row. This is a very funny passage to read with your wife in the front row. But you'll see why. You know what we're talking about, right? Um, but we're going to read 5, 21 to 69. It'll also be up front so you can follow there as well. Starting with verse 21 with our epigraph. Again, right? The thing that holds it all together. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ is the head of the church. His body which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. I stumbled on that first verse. It's right here. Right? Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle and any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands also love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, but this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of for whatever good they do whether they are slaves or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with them. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray that you now lead us, that you be with us, that you help us. Holy Spirit, help us as you do your work of uniting us as one. You made us one with God in calling us from sin into life, from calling us from death into life, from destruction into life. We thank you that you've knit us together as one and unite us together as the body of Christ. Holy Spirit, help us to feel your presence. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to be knit together as one. Father God, we thank you for your son Jesus, our Christ. 
to the one we look to, the one who left heaven to come to earth to show us how to live in love. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you this morning, not only for your sacrifice, not only for the redemption that's afforded for you, not only for everything that we have in you, but also, Lord Jesus, that you have taught us how to live. And Father God, how we praise you. We give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise, because you're the one who holds us. You're the one who sees us. You're the one who binds us. You're the one who carries us through. So, Lord, now as we continue to service and go through this passage, we pray for your wisdom. We pray for your voice. We pray for our hearts to be changed and our minds to be changed so that we can be united with you as we learn what it means to love one another and submit to one another too. In your holy and precious name, amen? So, in this passage, Paul begins with an epigraph, right? And the epigraph that holds the entire passage together. Again, if we don't hold it, it's a foundational passage, right? If you're building a house and you don't have a foundation, you don't have a house, right? If we don't hold it, it's a foundational understanding of the passage. We miss everything that Paul is saying. And what's the foundation? He says, we ought to submit to one another out of reverence of Jesus, right? This is a call for everybody. This isn't just a call for wives or husbands. This isn't just a call for children and parents. This isn't just a call for slaves and masters. This is a call for every single believer. That's what we're arguing. That's what we're actually speaking. That's what he's writing. This is what the argument we're putting forth this morning, right? That the epigraph, the thing that holds it all together, the concept, the theme, the, the, the purpose is that we are all taught to submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence of and that's what Paul is saying, because of who Jesus is, we ought to submit to God and one another. Because Jesus left heaven to come to earth, submit to God and one another. Because Jesus left this earth teaching you how to love, we ought to submit to God and one another. Because Jesus went to Calvary free to die for you, for me, for the world, we ought to submit to one another. Because Jesus went to the death of hell, the scripture says, and was raised on the third day, we ought to submit to God and one another. Because before he went to heaven, he made sure the disciples were okay and sent them the Holy Spirit and sent them out of his witnesses. We ought to submit to God and one another. Because Jesus is making heaven perfect. And so he's perfect to you. We ought to submit to God and one another. And because Jesus will come again, we ought to submit to God and one another. You got that now? We ought to submit to God and one another. When we divorce this from the passage, we make Paul sick. And how we know this is where this verse is situated. Now, some theologians in the past have, have used this verse to tie it into the first half of the chapter, which we covered a few weeks ago. And the reason they do that is because of uh, something called a participle. Yes, we're going to go to English class. Get your grammar we have time, right? A participle, in this case, isn't just putting an ing on the end of the word, right? It's describing something. It's describing as an adjective. So, for example, if I say the barking dog, right? I'm not talking about Hank who's yelling at you right now. I'm talking about the dog who's actually barking, right? So, when you look at the Greek, one of the fascinating things is that in the earliest manuscripts you have, the verb for submit isn't even there. So, that's interesting, right? Now, it doesn't mean that's not what he meant, so we're not off the hook, right? It just means that we're putting too much focus on submit and missing the actual meaning, right? So in the earliest, in the earliest uh, Greek text that we have, it's in actually verses 18 to 21, and it's there as a participle. So what's it describing? The spiritual Christian. Again, that's not limited to husbands and wives. 
and, and kids and parents and slaves and masters, that's everyone who believes. And if you want to be a spiritual Christian, this is what Paul writes that you should be doing, right? So we go back to Ephesians 5, 18 and 21, it reads like this. Do not get drunk on wine which leads to the bathroom. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he put out verse 21, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, in the first half, Paul is saying, what does a spiritual Christian look like? It's someone who sings the story of Jesus. It's someone who lives to give thanks to Jesus. And it's someone who submits to one another, right? So there's some people who see it like that. Well, in the last maybe two, three hundred years, right, we said, well, it might also relate to this second section. In fact, it might be, as I told you earlier, the epigraph of this passage of the household code, right? So in most of your Bibles, you'll see a cutoff between Ephesians 5.20 and then verse 21 begins a, a new section, right? And the reason they do that is simply because they say this is the foundation of the passage, right? What does a spiritual Christian look like? Yeah, you got to sing the songs of Jesus. Yeah, you gotta tell the story of Jesus, you gotta give thanks, you gotta submit to one another. But if we are going to be faithful to God, we have to be faithful not just in our public faith. We have to be faithful in our private homes. So for what Paul does in the section is he sets there as a foundation and says, listen, this is what a spiritual Christian looks like at home. Now, which one's right? I think they both are. I think God, this is gonna blow your mind. In the first time I said it's someone jump for that, I know it's not, right? God knows what God's doing. Right? Mind blowing. The new thing for some of us, right? But God knows what God's doing. And I think it's intensely in the middle here because we have to hold this in context of the whole Ephesians chapter 5, right? We have to know that in submitting to one another, we're being a spiritual Christian. But we also have to know that in submitting to one another in our households, we're also being a spiritual Christian. So, the other thing that's important for us to hold on here is that Paul is writing fairly normally by Greco-Roman standards. He's doing something that they call moral writing, right? So for the Greco-Romans, your, your, your morality and your moral duty were seen in not just what you put up front in the public, but what you did at home. And, and so their kind of setup that they would do to engage your, uh, I guess, morality would be how did you treat your how did you treat those enslaved and entrusted to you, and how did you treat your children? Right? We might be a little bit different, right? That's not how maybe we look at morality, right? But that's what he's working with. And I think that's important because a lot of times we separate these passages from each other, or a lot of times we just fuck what we like about it. But if we understand it as a whole, Paul's going to be challenging that. He's going to say, like, I know what y'all think is moral, but I want you not to follow the morals of the world, but to follow Jesus your Christ. I know what the world says you can look like to be a good person, but I want you to actually look like your Jesus. So that's kind of what he's doing here. So he says, if we want to adjust morality, yes, it matters how we are at home. Yes, it matters how we are with ourselves. Yes, it matters how we are with our children. Yes, it matters to those who work for us. But are we doing it with Jesus at the center? Are we doing it with Jesus at the heart? Are we doing it in reverence of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? So with all that said, we go into these household codes, and Paul begins by calling for mutual submission. Right? The call is because of who Christ is, we ought to submit to one another. Verse 21 doesn't stop because we get the husband and wife. 
It doesn't stop because we talk about slaves and, and masters. It doesn't stop because we talk about parents and children. The overwhelming theme is what? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when you get to husband and wife, what Paul is saying here is we have a mutual responsibility to one another. We ought to be living in a way that we are fully submitting to one another. And you're like, well, listen, this is tricky because, you know, like, they live in a culture that's maybe a little bit different than ours, right? We don't struggle with these things like they do. Like, like for example, patriarchy. Right? Like, only the Romans really struggle with that. We're so much more advanced now, right? We've moved past the problem we think men are better just because of being men. We've moved past that. Like, we're so much advanced, right? You don't believe me, that's good. But we also don't struggle with the fact that in our culture, for example, most of us, right, marry to this thing called love. And that makes us aliens when it comes to human history. Right? How long, I mean, someone puts back and they just like, well, we have artists and, and poets that wrote poems. I'm like, yeah, they wrote poems. Right? But the majority of human history, people haven't married to love. People married to duty. People married for position. People married because it was what you ought to do, right? And that's why they married. Why is that significant? Because Paul's writing to an audience that they had contracts as part of marriage. And I'm not just talking about free nuptial agreements. I'm talking about, like, I agree to marry you, this is what I'll do, this is what I'll do, this is what you'll do, this kind of people. Like, that's what their marriages were. And in the midst of these people who are down by duty, by society, by culture, he's going to introduce Love. That's significant to hold on to. Because a lot of times when we read this passage, especially the husband and wife part, we go to headship and authority, which is not in the passage at all, and we forget love, which is actually in the passage. Okay? So, Paul is writing also, and again, we got to use our imagination. I've got to you where your imagination comes from, right? Just like you have to imagine we still struggle with patriarchy, you have to imagine this one too. He's writing to a people, maybe you've heard this before, who are concerned that society is falling apart. They are concerned that the, 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 the human family or the, the natural human family isn't, isn't to be seen anymore. They're concerned about America, I mean, I'm sorry, Roman values being upheld, right? They're concerned about America first, I'm sorry, Rome first, right? They're concerned that Rome can't be first, America can't be first, because the family is falling apart. This is who Paul is writing to. And as he takes all of this, right, he's going to say, listen, I guess the reality that we're in, patriarchy exists. You're marrying because of contrast. Another thing that was uh, in that culture was that a lot of men had authority not just because they were men, but because they were in their early 30s when they got married. And that culture was acceptable to marry girls who were just maybe teenagers or in their early teenage years. So you had that natural authority built into that. So that's what he's dealing with. I think it's important for us to hold on to some of that. But yet, it's with all of this that Paul says, listen, wives, husbands, slaves, masters, children, parents, I want you to submit to one another. And here's the thing. I can say that in this church in 2022, and that's okay. But it breaks my heart, and it breaks your heart too. That this church is in our country, this church is in our world, that if we say that, we're seen as, as extra biblical. We're seen as not being faithful to the text in the scripture. Where this verses that have been used to oppress our sisters, for example, where we say God actually calls us to submit to one another, and in 2022, that's still seen as, as something wild. But I wish 
I'm glad my daughter gets to grow up in this church. But I pray every day that their children and grandchildren grow up in churches that actually believe the word of God, that we ought to be submitting to one another. That we ought to be submitting to one another. Because yes, Paul's thing about husbands and wives, but he's working within the context of that culture and society. And in fact, if you want an actual better definition of submit, the Greek is, just, is going to this idea of humble, loyal, loving, deference, and cooperation. And that's what it's talking about. It's not saying, I have more power than you, right? Like, you saw my humility, and that's why he turns it to Christ. The other thing that's fascinating to me, too, is that when he uses the head and body, he's talking about unity, not authority. Nowhere in the passage you say who's in control, right? And nowhere in the passage you say you're in control. So if you read the passage, you're like, well, I'm the man, I'm the head, I'm in charge. You added all of that. It's not here. Read the passage again. It's not here. Everything you're inferring that because you're the head, you're in charge, is stuff you put into the text. Read, gentlemen. Take it with me. Our sister does that well. Listen, 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 Right? And we can do metaphors, right? When Bob Martin says one love, one part, let's get together and feel right. None of us believe that we all have one heart that we call into to feel right, right? Like, we believe in metaphors except when it comes to the passage. Right? Like, he's speaking metaphorically, but we're like, well, actually, that's what the text says, right? It's a metaphor. Why is this metaphor significant? It's significant. And I, I, I have to give a shout out to some of the old ladies I grew up in church with. They say, you know what? My husband might be the head, but I'm the next. You know, they try to redeem the passage, right? They try to interpret the passage correctly, right? It's just like, he might be the head, but, you know? But I think even they get closer, but they miss the mark, too. Because this passage isn't about authority and leadership. It's about love. And as a kid, why I struggle with this passage is I'm like, wow, I think my women got this easy, right? And you put me in a dark age, and you tell me what to do, and listen, I'll follow you. We'll go to the light together, right? But I'm supposed to love you the way Christ loves the church. That's a little bit harder. Right? Like, I'm supposed to always put you first. I'm supposed to be willing to die for you. I'm supposed to literally put you ahead of me. But again, if we understand the text and the context of Ephesians 5 and 521, this isn't just a call for women or not just a call for men. It's a call for all of us. Just that he's gaining, that doesn't mean you get off, right? Like, you don't, as a woman, say, I don't have to love you the way Christ loves me, that's how it says. And you don't, as a man, get to say, I don't have to submit to my wife in this because that's what it says. And I love when people are like, well, well, what if it's this and 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 this That's you speaking from your heart. That's you speaking from your Western individualism. That's you speaking from, actually, maybe we should pray about this. Maybe we should listen to the Spirit. We actually have a community of believers around us. Maybe we should seek help from them, right? Like, when you are focused on the tiebreaker, you're focused on power, on authority, on leadership. You're not focused on looking like Jesus. Right? You're not focused on looking like Jesus. And how do we look like Jesus? Authority, leadership, none of that shows up. Love shows up six different times, right? How do you love and look like Jesus? We lower ourselves to elevate our partner. 
Right? It's hard to lead when you're on a high horse. It's hard to lead when you're on a horse. Right? The horse might do a better job of leading than you with it. And here's the beautiful thing. My, my, my friend Kirk Williams, who's a, a brilliant pastor who's now in Canada, says it like this. What Paul is asking us to do is we ought to be willing to crucify our Christians. Paul's not saying that as a man, you don't have privilege in this society and culture. Paul's not saying as a man, world's going to give you leadership and they're going to put you forward and say, you're number one, you're the head. But he is saying that everything that's been given to you, if it's harming others, if it's abusing others, if it's oppressing others, you better not only throw it away, you better crucify that privilege because your job is to look like Jesus and not the world. And not the world. So you ought to lower yourself to elevate your partner, and you have to love like you love your own body. And I love this because it's like, if you don't like metaphors, you just got to keep hitting you and hitting you to get one of And that's what's stuck with me, right? He's like, if you love your wife, you're going to truly love your body. And I'm like, yeah. Because when you love your body, you take care of it. You know, I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking about food right now, Paul. I got you. Right? We have a delicious meal after the service, right? If you've been with us, I think it used to be six months. But now we're doing three years to the pandemic. So if you've come within the last three years, you're invited. Go up the road. We have lots of food. Please come, right? But Paul makes it so personal. Because in this metaphor, it's not about who's leading. It's not about who has authority. It's about how to be work together, right? When you eat, right, your knee doesn't go like, you know what, I'm going to do my job better now because you ate something, right? It's all about the unity of the body. That's what he's going for. And then the other beautiful thing about this is he goes back to Genesis to level the playing field. And we ought to go back to Genesis too. Because what happens in Genesis, right? Man and woman are created together in the image of God. God doesn't take a woman from the head of his feet but the side, right? And apparently God seems to think we're equal. Apparently God seems to think we ought to be working together. And apparently God seems to think that the unity is two becoming one, an ongoing oneness. It's not one person learning anything over the other. And so when we say, wives, submit to your husband, that's a reminder to husband that you ought to be submitting to your wife. And when we say, husbands, love your wife like Christ loves the church, it's a reminder to wives that you ought to love him like Christ loves the church too. And then we get the parents and children. Again, the, the message here is, because of Christ's example, submit to one another. This is mind-blowing to the Roman culture. That's what I did, and I got to tell you, this mind-blowing to me too. The idea of parents and children mutually submission, that's new to me, right? I grew up in a house where you weren't allowed to have thoughts, right? Like, you know, I think, what are you thinking for? It's like, what is going on? Like, I want, what are you wanting for? Like, it's just the Lord is my shepherd. You tell me I want it, right? Like, like, I grew up in a, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just telling you what it is. Right? Very vulnerable here, right? Right? So this idea, right, that, that kids and parents are mutually, uh, uh, mutually, uh, not only exclusive, but mutual submission, it's mind-blowing. And here's the thing that some of us also need to hear. Just like we can't be on one end of the spectrum and our kids don't get a voice, we also can't be on the other end of the spectrum where our kids are annoyed. Where our life, our body, our schedule, our time, our effort, all is based on our children. That's also idolatry too, right? So, so what is the balance? The balance of Paul is mutual submission, meaning that again he's not just single out parents and children, but he's saying, "Let these kids, your job where you at right now is to obey your parents." And, and he gives out the original reward system. So a lot of people are supposed to work, and, and uh, they'll tell you, "Skip, give kids rewards." 
three words, right? Something to look forward to, right? So Paul takes this in and he's like, listen to me. I know it's hard, but I need you to obey them, so guess what? You'll live a long life. You know, God will bless you. It'll be great, right? The original reward system packs on right there. And I think the harder teaching comes for parents. Because I think the message he gives to parents is that you ought to be building up your children in the Lord and not breaking them down. And that's a challenge for some of us. Because we grew up in hard homes. We grew up in homes with lots of trauma. We grew up exposed to lots of trauma. And the thing is, if we don't do the work of prayer, of therapy, of getting support, of having communities around us, all we do is pass on that trauma to our children. And, and your kids are meant to be your Lord, but they also aren't your competition. Your kids are meant to be your hopes and dreams, but they also are meant to be who you step on to feel better about yourself. You ought to be building them up in the Lord. Because if you're breaking them down, God will hold you accountable for that. And the mutual submission there looks like you actually not only giving them a voice, but actually teaching them what God has taught you. And then we come to what I think is the hardest part of the passage. I'm 39 years old. I grew up in Southwest Philly. Most black people I know who grew up in the church, the oldest things that I like to call them, hate this part of culture. And for a lot of white people, you can hear them. They're like, I mean, it's not nice, but quite a hate. There's a lot of them who swore up all the fall. Yeah. That's a lot of the New Testament. <laughs> you know, like, like, you know what I'm saying? That's a lot of the New Testament. They're so really good Christians, they're even better Anabaptists than me, because they just look in Jesus. And what Jesus did and what Jesus acted, how Jesus interacted, that's what they focused on, right? But the reason they swore off Paul is because on these terms, they use this same passage to steal from the natives, to save our Christians and brothers from Africa, and to uphold white supremacy. To put America first and have God's kingdom on the back of our sisters and brothers from the natives and our sisters and brothers from the world. And then there's people who use it, and, and people who enslave people who say, see, the scripture says you ought to submit to me. They miss the entire passage. Because what submits is we ought to be submitting to one another. And the other thing we have to hold dear and hold close is to realize that there was no scenario that Paul could imagine what slavery did in exist. Just like for some of us, there's no scenario where we can imagine in this here America where racism doesn't exist. Where patriarchy doesn't exist. Where ableism doesn't exist, right? There's no society where we can even imagine those things. So Paul is speaking to his context and his culture, and he's saying, listen, I'm not saying this is the logical readers are like, well, obviously Paul's okay with slavery. Paul never had a thought about being okay with slavery. Because for him, it's just like, I'm speaking to how we view morality. We view morality in how you treat yourself, how you treat your children, and how you treat those who are in slavery. That's the world you live in. And yet, even in this impossible situation, he says, listen, I know some of you are serving masters who are Christian and who aren't Christian. And this blows me away because if I was preaching this sermon in 1822, how much things would be different? I'd probably be enslaved of one of you by earning my freedom from one of you. And yet, Paul is speaking to a people who have this happening where the slaves were worshiping with the slave masters. And in the midst of this, he says, Yeah, you know what? You ought to be submitting to one another. You ought to be submitting to one another. If you are enslaved, you ought to obey. 
And I know this is impossible. I know this is hard. And you need to serve with your whole heart. Why? Because you are serving God. Right? And he turns it on to the, to the masters. And I don't know if there's much of this in any ancient text where the masters have to actually submit to the enslaved. He says you ought to respect them, you ought to be fair, you ought to be good. Why? Because God sees you. I think that's beautiful. If you're reminded that God sees the enslaved and the masters, and holds both of them accountable. So Paul is saying the mutual submission here is because you belong to Christ and each other, you ought to see them different than the world sees them. And that's the essence of this entire passage, right? If we're going to bring it all down together, all Paul is saying is, if you belong to Jesus, if you're a spiritual Christian, you're going to live a life of submission to God and one another. We submit because of who Jesus is, our Lord and Savior. That's the one we answer to. But we also submit because of what Jesus has done. He left heaven to come to earth. He walked the earth and showed you the love, right? He went to the tree and died. He raised you to He sent us out as witnesses. He's glittering and he's coming back for us. The thing that the challenge for us is that Jesus seems to believe that all of us ought to be submitted every single day in every single way. And yet, in this passage, he's working within the work of a Roman household. So I think the challenge for us, though, is what does it mean to be mutually submissive in the house that we live in, in the blocks that we live in, in the schools we go to? in the jobs that we have, in the relationships that we have. What does it mean to not hoard power over others? What does it mean to not, not, not walk in our privilege and just be happy for our privilege? Like, I'm so glad I'm a millionaire, right? I'm a leader, right? Like, what does it mean to actually say, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice all of that because that's what the world wants and that doesn't want to play for you. What does it mean for us because according to Paul, if you're spirit filled, you're emptying yourself of pride, of arrogance, of conceit, of power. And you're filling yourself up with light and love and peace. Amen? I'd like to call it the worship team. Um, and before we go into communion, I want to give you a minute. Answer that question before this begins, right? Take a minute to think about what does it mean that God calls me to submit to Him and for me to submit to the people in my life? And as you hold that first question, we'll get ready for communion. We'll be sharing this meeting together, celebrating the new life that we have in Jesus. Um, to the followers, we can invite you to partake of the bread and the cup. As you came in, um, you hopefully picked up some of the elements in the door. If you don't have any, just raise your hand. Some nice person in the back will get you some. If anybody's got some, so we're good. Uh, if not, just raise your hand and we'll be able to get you some. I think there's a couple people in the front and the back, so thank you. Yeah. So just keep your hand up and just listen to me if you can keep your hand up and we'll get it to you, all right? Uh, again, we'll be passing out of them in the cup. As you receive them, we ask that you hold them until all have been served and we can partake in it together. 
The table of the Lord is for all who believe. We don't require that you be a member of the Harrison Brethren of Christ Church. We do, our scripture calls us to be a member of Christ Church, and we believe and receive Jesus' glory. Um, Pastor Bree will join me now for the community. invite you to come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. We come to testify not that we are perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. We come not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty we stand constant need of heaven's mercy and help. We come not only to remember his death, but also his resurrection and promise to return. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before us, let us lift up our minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to us the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Our first reading will come from Philippians 3. Let's join together in this responsive reading from communion taken from Philippians 3. We want to know Christ. We want to know the fellowship of his suffering. We want to know the power of his resurrection. We press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. We forget what is behind us and press on towards what is ahead of us. One way that we press on in our faith is to share in the Lord's Supper together. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Be this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for the blessing of your Son, Jesus Christ. That you still love us, you still love this world that you sent your Son, Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your example of not thinking equality with God was something to be grasped and held on to, of leaving heaven to come to earth of showing us how to live and love here. The Lord, just now, as we come to the table, we thank you for your sacrifice, for your body broken for us, that we who are dead can come to new life, that we who are in darkness can now be children of light through your sacrifice. Lord Jesus, our Christ, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that reminds us and calls us back to you. And we thank you that because of your sacrifice, we can come to this table together, joyful that you freely, that you willingly, that you lovingly sacrifice for us. In your name we pray. Amen. We take the bread, let's do this reading together. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of Christ. Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Eat on him in your hearts and be thankful.
Lord, may we receive your gift and live lives worthy of that sacrifice. We anticipate your return today. We thank you for being able to take communion in community. We thank you for the unity that this symbolizes. May we be your unified body as we seek to leave our sins behind and live in all that you welcome us to, to join in the joy of your good work here for us on earth. We love you, Lord. And let us join together. Now, my brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. Take this cup, remembering that he said, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful.
submitting to God and submitting to one another. Amen? Our Father, God, we thank you so much that it's the Holy Spirit that unites us together as one. That this world might tell us all the ways we're different. But in Jesus, we are a people who've been died for yet. But we are people who've been redeemed, who've been set free, who are dead and now are given new life. Holy Spirit, unite us in the name of Jesus. Let us together as one. Jesus, our Christ. We thank you for all the ways you showed us the love. We pray that our lives may not only be a reflection of the love we received, but the love you've asked us to give. So, Lord, for those who are suffering, help us to bring healing. For those who don't feel seen, help us to give love and presence. And for those who feel like God isn't there, help us to be your loving presence in your life. God, help us to be people who not only are willing to meet our world where they're at, but to meet them and then bring them to where you desire to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, Father God, we thank you that you are the God who sees and no matter our situation, no matter what we're going through, no matter our struggle, no matter our darkness, no matter how dark the world may seem, you are the light. You are the healer. You are the peace. You are the hope. You are the joy. You are the compassion. And Lord, you are the love. Help us to feel that in this moment. Help us to feel that this week. And Holy Spirit, empower us. So we are humble enough to like Jesus, submit to you. So Lord, we also pray as we depart, as we depart, we pray that you continue to teach us how to love you more and how to love one another, how to submit to you, but also, Lord, how to submit to one another. For we are filled by your Spirit for the glory of the kingdom. Let us live wisely and circumspectly, and let us live with how we can call glorify you in all that we say, in all that we do. In your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.